as we were singing that uh, glorify thy name, uh, Father, Son, Spirit, I was recalling the truths of what we've been studying on Wednesday night in our uh, study of the, the doctrine of the Trinity. So the Father is glorious, the Son is glorious, the Spirit is glorious, but there is one glory. It's beautiful. This uh, doctrine of the Trinity, the most basic Christian belief that we can't even comprehend. This morning, uh, we want to go to Acts chapter 3. We want to continue where we left off last week. And um, a lot of positive responses to last week and walking through really what is a display of our own infirmity uh, that is this lame beggar laying at the gate, the beautiful gate. And we arrived at the conclusion that the beautiful gate ought to show us, it ought to point us to Jesus, who is the door. He is the, the beautiful gate. Now, we can c- continue in this story, and, and last week was, man, it's just like we can, we can worship because of these truths. And really... Um, you know, it's, it's dangerous to, to preach sermons that, are, that have no points, but as you realize maybe last week that it wasn't a pointless sermon, and you've heard that before, haha. Uh, but there was one point that we got to, one point that we, this week, and this week we get to see how Peter and John work out what happened. So I'll give you a spoiler alert here. The ultimate goal of the lame beggar's healing was not in his walking and leaping and praising God. That wasn't the end to which they were working. And we see that because the encounter continues and Peter carries the conversation. We might think it's a different way, but actually it's the conversation that that goes to the logical conclusion of this man's healing. Sometimes we're too short-sighted to see the connections in God's word. But if we keep on reading, I would have loved to preach the whole thing as one, but that would have been like an hour and a half sermon. So uh, just uh, let me know if you want me to preach an hour and a half sermon at some point. We'll make those plans. (laughs) He said lunch. Uh, So let's read. Let's read continuing. We're going to pick up in verse 11. We're going to go all the way through 26. Okay, so you know the scene. Verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. In his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you 
see, and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that this Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come, come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servants, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Pray with me. Father God, again, we ask for your help. Open up our hearts and minds that we can understand your word, that we can see Jesus, that we may apply what is recorded here for our benefit, that we may apply it rightly and you would be honored in this. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Now you're noticing here in verse 11 that the scene has moved. No longer are they in the temple. Now they're in Solomon's portico. As I walk through what Peter said here, it's very reminiscent of the sermon that he preached at Pentecost. Many of the same elements, as I noted, how he addresses them, for, for one. But as this happens, and these people are sort of, they ran to, to see this man who was just healed. They ran to where Peter and John were. Um, Peter was not going to miss this opportunity to witness to the truth of the Lord Jesus. We must not miss the opportunity to hear his word. Now, as I mentioned before, we don't quickly see the connections. We don't typically see these two things as going together. Now, a, a mature Christian is going to see maybe a little bit better uh, a healing, but then the gospel. But what's interesting is it doesn't take any time for Peter and his ministry, now that the church has been created post-Pentecost, it doesn't take him any effort to see how a healing that takes place testifies to the truth of the gospel that Christ died, was buried, and rose again for our salvation. We tend to th see these things as two separate. Like, yeah, there's healing over here, but that has nothing to do with my soul. No, Peter is like, hey, uh, this healing happened, spoiler, so that you would know that Jesus died for you and you could be saved. I want to give you this theme today, very simple theme today. Kingdom signs point the way to everlasting life. Kingdom signs point the way to everlasting life. 
Now, let me explain that. Some of you have not been around to hear me talk extensively about the kingdom. But when we say kingdom signs, we're basically saying that various things that, that God puts in our way and, and actions that are taken, even as Jesus says, like when you give a, a cup of water in my name, right? This is a sign. This is a signpost. So it's not ultimately that somebody gets to be refreshed with a nice cup of water or to quench their thirst with water. Yeah, that's a, that's a little thing. But ultimately, that points us to how Jesus is the one who quenches that eternal thirst. And so these signs point to greater truth. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But you understand, you understand kingdom signs point the way to everlasting life. And if we put it in the context of the beautiful gate, and I'll give you this title for today. It was up there. The beautiful gate opened. The beautiful gate opened. So if kingdom signs point the way to everlasting life, then the response is, let me go through the beautiful gate. Let me enter by the way of Jesus. Let me come to faith in him and have this everlasting life. I want to give you two encouragements from the text today. Two encouragements from the text. First, understand the signs. Understand the signs. We see this from verses 12 through 16. Again, these are signs of the kingdom. This man's healing is a sign of the kingdom. It indicates something greater. So we want to, we want to talk about these signs. And first off, uh, Peter offers a basic correction in regard to the signs. A basic correction. We see this from verses 12 and 16. He says, Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Now jump ahead and you see verse 16. It says, in his name, by faith in his name, he has made, that's the name of Jesus, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. There's a basic correction. These people ran to them. It kind of mirrors the way that people followed Jesus around in the crowds. And one of my favorite references to this, because it's so, it's just so obvious. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, multiplies the bread and the fish, they keep following him around. He has to get in a boat because they're pressing in so hard. He goes to the other side of the, of the water, and there are people in crowds waiting on him. It, it, it mirrors this. And what was happening then is what was happening here. It's that the people aren't necessarily after Jesus. They're after what he can do. They're after what he can provide. And it's at this point when Peter begins to preach that the two groups are separated. Are you of the group that wants Jesus or are you of the group that just wants what he can do for you? We asked this, this question in Sunday school this morning, and, and it's, a, it's a helpful reminder. If Jesus were not in heaven, would you still want to go there? Maybe some introspection needs to happen. 
And so right here, these people are following them around and they have the wrong idea. They think that Peter and John are the source of this miracle. Hey, let's get these guys. They can help us. They can do things. They have this misplaced hope, this misplaced expectation. And in order to reveal this to to them, Peter asked the question, why do you stare at us as though by our own power and piety we have made him walk? We ought to look at Peter as a good example here. When people start to give us praise, we ought to automatically deflect that to the Lord Jesus. It's the Lord's grace. It's the Lord's help. My brother-in-law gave me some wonderful encouragement this weekend, and I, you know, I wanted to be like, yeah, you know, I was just, I was just thinking ahead, and I had a clear sight on when I was giving you that advice, but no, I knew it wasn't me. What I said to him five years ago, no, I was, I was just trusting like good counsel from God would help. And then we see how the Holy Spirit was behind that. How God intends, if you want to know the details, I'm sure he would tell you. So Peter deflects. He's like, look, there's nothing in me. You're going to see later uh, the apostles become object, objects of worship. And they say, don't bow down to us. We're nothing. So he says, why do you stare at us as though we did this? And the question reveals their error. And then in verse 16, Peter states the the correct basic understanding of the event. It's the name of Jesus that holds the power of healing and restoration. It's faith in Jesus' name that made this man strong and gave him perfect health right before your eyes. Now, Peter emphasizes, and this is important, Peter emphasizes the name just as he did at the conclusion of the sermon at Pentecost. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Now, pause right here on that song we sang. I was also thinking about this. So, when we say, to remind you of sermons, the sermon that Peter preached at Pentecost, when we say the name of Jesus, that's the same thing as saying the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is not one name, and Jesus has another name, and the Holy Spirit has another name. There are not three names, but there is one name. And so when Peter speaks of the name of Jesus, he has it wrapped up in the eternal triune God. He gives this basic correction to put the name of Jesus on display, and he elaborates that that name in verses, the in-between verses, 13 through 15. So there's a basic correction, but he shows them that their, their uh, rejection of Jesus formerly was an errant rejection. There's a basic correction. He reveals through this their errant rejection. I'll read it again there. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. You know what these verses do? In case you missed it, 
these verses present the gospel again. Really, in a, in a format that's similar to Pentecost. Jesus is upheld again as the rejected one, the one that this people denied before Pilate. And Peter draws attention to the name of Jesus in this really Jesus-centered gospel presentation. Side note here, let's share the gospel in a way. I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of making the gospel about mankind. But let's share the gospel in a way that it exalts God. Let our gospel presentation be about the beauty and glory of God as we know him in Christ. Peter's like, hey, the gospel is ultimately about getting glory to God. But we share the gospel, to to be even more clear, we share the gospel oftentimes in ways like, Oh, you know that God has created you and he loves you and he wants the best for you. Like those things are true. But if we make the gospel about us, we rob the glory from God and put it on us. That's why some Christians come to the conclusion that there must be something about me that was desirable for God to save me. I'm worthy of that salvation. No, no, no. The gospel is about God saving lame beggars like you and me for his own glory. And then at the end of your life, when you you breathe your last, you know, this verse just keeps coming to mind, that it was to show that there was nothing beautiful or powerful about you, but that all the power, the surpassing power, belongs to God and not to us. 2 Corinthians 4. We're just those jars of clay, those earthen vessels. You look upon us, ugh, nothing special but God. The gospel is about God. I love you, Raul, love you. He references here the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a thoroughly Jewish appeal, rich in Old Testament language about the covenant faithful God that these people claim to worship. But notice their rejection. Their rejection is a rejection of the one that God glorified. He calls Jesus servant. Now, if you have the King James Version, it actually translates that word uh, son. So the word can be either servant or son. And servant seems to be a better translation. But this calling Jesus a servant brings to mind Isaiah's prophecies about the suffering servant, doesn't it? Suffering that he mentions in verse 18, to call him God's servant is to identify him as the chosen one of God. And so his declaration before them is that you rejected the very chosen one of God. But he says your rejection is also a rejection of the holy and righteous one. Do you see how, you notice, the name of Jesus is being exalted, and then he's using all of these different titles to exalt the name of Jesus. He he says, you're rejecting the holy and righteous one. You rejected him. And the title here mounts up more Old Testament language and applies it to Jesus. Jesus is the innocent one that they demanded be put to death. And do you remember what happened? My Tuesday morning Bible study folks ought to be 
standing up and shouting when I say this. Do you remember what happened? They demanded the innocent one die, but they demanded a murderer to go free. And some of you are like, who's that? His name is Barabbas. His name is Barabbas. Barabbas is in there. He's fought the government. He's part of an insurrection. He is a convicted murderer. And with Pilate, which as Mark describes and Luke describes as well, when Pilate says, who do you want me to release? He did this as a custom. Because Pilate was a part of the the Roman government. And in order to gain favor with the Jews that lived in in his jurisdiction, he would do this uh, uh, like politically. And so when he asked the question, who do you want me to release? And, And in his mind, it's like obvious, like Jesus, you don't even know of anything. Nobody can testify to his sin or law breaking. None of your stories match up. He's like, don't you want me to release Jesus? And they're like, crucify him. And they say, let Barabbas go free. I hope you realize, just as the lame beggar was a picture of us, that Barabbas is a picture of us. That Barabbas is the one who is the convicted murderer. He's the lawbreaker. And some of you are like, well... I mean, I've broken the law, but I'm not a murderer. And James tells us once again, hey, if you've broken the law at one point, you're guilty of it all. If you have failed to measure up 100% to the righteousness of God, you are entirely a lawbreaker. And God must judge sin. So he calls him the holy and righteous one the innocent one that was killed at their hands while the murderer was set free. And I love the, the, those mixed feelings about our participation of putting Jesus on the tree, but at the same time realizing that this is how God saved us. They freed the murderer, ironically, and they became murderers themselves. It's a rejection of the one God glorified, rejection of the holy and righteous one, and it's a rejection of the author of life. As you read there, he attributes Jesus' death directly to them. You killed the author of life. Now, this is not primarily a title about the creative power of of Christ. Because as you know, John 1 tells us that everything that was made was made by him. Without him, not anything that was made was made. (laughs) Uh, So it's not about his creative power. It's about his recreative power. If you keep going... You keep going. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. 
So do you understand that when Jesus rose from the grave, he was the first of a new kind. He was the, the originator of this new life that we have, this Romans 6 kind of, kind of life. If we are identified with Jesus in his death, and, there, and Romans 6 tells us by baptism, then you are raised and you have life in Jesus. You're raised to new life. So to refer to him as the author of life, it's a way to say you must be born again into this life. You must be resurrected from the dead into this life. He says God raised him from the dead. Now, we have this basic correction. We have this errant rejection. And if there were any, any question about the source of this man's healing, then Peter corrects it by helping them understand the purpose of the miracle. He was healed so that you would come to faith in Jesus. The miracle is not a complete end in and of itself. It is, again, a signpost of Christ's kingdom. A proper understanding of the signs and that's the big point here. Understand the signs. A proper understanding of the signs should result in faith. This is the logical conclusion. Think about it this way. If he were to just be healed, and he were to never learn of the death and resurrection of Jesus, what good would that do? He's just going to die and go to hell. I'm afraid that many of us have a really short-sighted view of God's work, and we're totally happy with the healing. But we're not so happy about the big picture of the salvation of souls. Like, we get excited about healing. We get excited about God's immediate blessings. We get excited when he answers a prayer. But do we forget the big picture, what God is doing ultimately in the grand scheme of things? Do we rejoice more, for instance, at Jerry's physical healing? Or do we rejoice that he knows the author of life? Think about what Jesus said. He said in a different context, but it still applies. He said, look, it's better for you to enter heaven maimed or lame. Let's <laughs> say that again. It's better for you to enter heaven maimed or lame than to be thrown into, into eternal fire with both of your feet both of your hands, both of your eyes. Do you remember the context? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off because it's better. It's better for you to get into heaven with one hand. It's better for you to go to heaven maimed or lame, Jesus says, than to have hell fire with all of your limbs. Maybe you didn't notice, but Luke records 
this faith where we're aiming. He records this faith in Jesus' name as the key to the healing. And the question is, it must be asked, whose faith? Because you read it and it's not quite clear. Is it the faith of the man? Really, he hardly had faith as Peter lifted him up. Maybe, maybe sort of the faith came as he lifted, lifted him up. Maybe it's the faith of Peter and John. Of course, they're walking by faith, but Luke doesn't specify any of this. And commentator Paul Hill suggests Luke deliberately left it open to emphasize faith alone rather than the possessor of faith. And I'll put that to you. We may not know whose faith is is at work here because the point is faith. When we speak of the miraculous power of God and faith in it, here's what happens. We tend to turn inward as if we're the source of faith. As if faith is something that we have sort of generated out of our, you know, whatever. Am I believing enough? Is my faith strong enough? To use Jesus' words, can I use use my faith to, to move mountains? Is it enough faith? And many of you have spent probably seasons of your life wondering if you had enough faith. And then you have made Uh, following Jesus, a matter of your own works rather than the grace of God. And your faith becomes your work. Oh, I believe enough. I have conjured this faith. I generated this faith all on my own. But then you start to read the Bible and you learn. You learn that there's a greater miracle than the miracle of this man's healing. That this man's healing was a lesser miracle that led to a greater miracle of faith in Christ. But we don't typically view faith as a miracle, do we? What were you apart from Christ? Ephesians 2, dead in your trespasses and sins. And you know what God did? But God Ephesians 2 verse 4 made you alive together with him. How did he do that? By granting you, giving you the gift of faith and grace. You read those verses and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Salvation comes by grace. Did you know that your faith is a gift from God? And when we read throughout the book of Acts, we see the plea to God. Maybe God would grant you repentance and faith. So don't get the wrong idea that you believing is something that you have just come up with. But it's the Holy Spirit that planted that seed in you, that breathed his breath of life into you. That Ephesians 2 forward you. He made you alive together with Christ. Oh, man, I feel like I could stop right there. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Hopeless, helpless, like this lame beggar was, barred from the worship of God, faith 
is a gift of God. Peter doesn't leave faith hanging, though. He ties it to a visible response. (laughs) And everything that made you excited right now, if you're not careful, it might deflate you. Because in order to talk about salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, we have to talk about repentance. Don't check out, though. Understand the signs so that you can come to faith in Jesus. But secondly, abandon the sins. Abandon the sins. I'm supposed to say 26. In these verses, 17 through 26, I'll move quickly. But Peter calls his listeners to repentance. You may notice verse 17 begins with a bit of a hopeful word from Peter. It seems like, now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as also did your rulers. Now, you might read that and you think, well, Peter's really letting them off the hook, right? No, that's not what's happening. He's not saying that these people are let off the hook because of their rejection of Christ. He's not saying, well, you didn't really know, so it's okay. No, actually, in fact, in the Old Testament, we learn that God demands atonement for all sins. Did you know even sins committed unintentionally, God demands atonement for that? God never just overlooks sin. You may go to Numbers 15, 27 to 31 if you want to look at some of the evidence there, but it talks there about those sins of ignorance or those sins that were unintentional. For these things, there is prescribed in the law a means of atonement, ready atonement. So Peter is helping these people to understand, and he's helping us to understand that though they acted ignorantly in killing the Lord of glory, they are not beyond the forgiveness that he brings. There is atonement for you. That's his point. Do you remember what Jesus prayed as he hung on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And now we're seeing these souls encounter that forgiveness. Sins of ignorance are contrasted in the Old Testament from high-handed sins. Pole Hill's very helpful with this. High-handed sins. You understand what I mean? It's the kind of sin that, like, like we we love to point to our children and, and us as children, really, when we do those sins that are just blatant, blatant disobedience, rebellious, in your face, God, that kind of sin. High-handed sins. So if they were to reject Jesus now, after learning of his full identity, their souls would be in peril. They would be one step closer to that hell fire. And he reminds them of God's plan that he mentioned at Pentecost, a plan that accomplished the full atonement for sin. He mentions how they facilitated, that was facilitated in the grand scheme of God by their ignorance. You didn't know what you were doing. God knew what he was doing. And he tells them, one, 
Truly repent. Repent. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Verse 19, repent and turn back are two different words that describe a complete change of mind. Y'all listen to me closely here. Because if you don't hear this, then you're going to walk away thinking that the good news doesn't actually impact the rest of your life. Repent and turn back here. Two different words that describe a complete change of mind, which is supported by actions. What we may call the fruit of repentance. John the Baptist talked about this. He said, bear fruit. He encouraged the, the listeners, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You say you repented? Show me by your actions. What does your life look like? Because if we think that we're just recipients of salvation that has nothing to do with our life, then we become those people who abuse God's grace. We become those people about which Romans 6 was, was directed. Hey, so, so if, if, if grace abounds where sin abounds, then we can sin all the more so that grace can abound, right? I'm covered by the blood. I can do what I want, right? No. That's not repentance. And do you see how that, that lack of, of understanding repentance, that lack of true repentance leads to a lawlessness, a licentiousness. It leads to those sins committed with a high hand. And you read throughout your Old Testament and you see how the people of God, they committed high-handed sin upon high-handed sin because they thought, oh, God's blessing is upon us. We're doing our rituals, we're presenting the sacrifices, but then we're going over here to worship these other gods. True repentance brings about a life change. It brings about a life that's aligned with the instruction of the Lord through his word. So to claim Christ and to not have a change of mind that leads to a change of direction means that repentance did not take place. And let's be clear here, faith and repentance are two sides, I like to say it, two sides of the same, same coin. You can't have faith in Jesus and salvation without repentance. Because in order to have faith in Jesus, it begins with a repentant heart, literally to turn around and go the other direction. So to claim Christ and not see this change means repentance did not take place. And did you know, you need to be aware that there's a strand of teaching in our day that denies what we call lordship salvation. Be careful, be careful. It's the idea that Jesus can somehow be your savior without being your Lord. The news for you, well, after I tell you, whenever you hear that, run away. The news for you, if Jesus is not your Lord, he is not your Savior. And when he becomes your Lord and Savior, a few results come to light. I'll just list them quickly. Forgiveness, that is your debts canceled. Sin cast as far as the east is from the west. 
They're, they're buried in the deepest parts of the sea, erased from the record of heaven. We may say it as Colossians says it, nailed to the tree. Forgiveness is yours. He also mentions refreshing. And this word refreshing is tied to the word restoration, as he mentions in the next couple of verses. What we'll say about that right now is you may have foretastes of refreshing in your life. Knowing what it's like to live under the lordship of Christ, the reign of Christ, and seeing how it was as God intended. How life following Jesus is is what is good and right. And that's refreshing when you get to see those foretastes. You get to taste that. But there's a day coming when all of that will be made full. So there's forgiving, there's refreshing, and then there's anticipation. Similar idea. Now that Messiah is gone, they're reminded that they will be united with him. And the Old Testament teaches that his, his return is closely tied to their repentance. So now they're repenting, and they're looking just like we are toward the return of Christ. And Peter in verse 21 gives further explanation as to why Jesus is not with them now. He says, truly repent. Brief word of application. Is it possible that forgiveness doesn't seem real to you? That there's little little evidence of being refreshed and restored? That you don't live in light of Christ's coming all because you never truly repented of your sin? These ideas... Forgiveness, refreshing, and anticipation, are they foreign to you? The message is repent. And he says, truly believe. And on the basis of words from Moses, on the basis of the record of Abraham, he encourages them toward faith. There is danger in unbelief. He says, you're going to be cut off from the people of God. You're going to be cut off from God himself. And can't we find so much of our can't we find so much of our sin tied to just simply unbelief? I don't believe that God is good enough, so I'm going to seek after another God. I don't believe that God is worthy, so I'm going to worship elsewhere. I don't believe that God will fulfill his promise, so I'm going to find whatever looks like it will bring me immediate satisfaction. Truly believe. He shows, verse 22 through 24, how Jesus fulfills prophecy. They say they trusted the word of Moses, but the question is, would they follow through with that by trusting Jesus, the greater prophet, the greater Moses? says Jesus is the completion of the covenant, verses 25 and 26. says, you remember Abraham? You remember the promise? It's through his offspring, one, singular, through his offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In 26, he says, hey, I'm giving this to you first. God sent this to you first because you're part of his covenant people. Now, what's interesting here, as we conclude on this and talk about repentance, faith, that Jesus is Lord, as we conclude here, It's interesting to think about 
how Peter may not have fully grasped what he said right here. That through his offspring, Abraham's offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Because you remember what happened a few chapters later. When Peter is uh, not so quick to share the gospel with Cornelius, a Gentile. And it takes a little bit of prodding from God himself to get Peter to share the gospel. But I want to remind you that unless you have um, blood ties to Abraham directly and you are a Jew of Jews who received this gospel first, Romans 1, to the Jew first, unless you're one of those, then you're one of those that is in that family somewhere scattered on the earth that would be blessed through the offspring singular of Abraham, who is Jesus. Aren't you so grateful that God said the gospel is for all people, all nations, everywhere? And in the end, we're going to be those representing the peoples of the earth, praising God, giving glory to God for the rest of eternity. Let's stop there. Repent and believe. Some of you ought to really wrestle through that concept of repentance because I'm afraid that maybe if you look at your life, it doesn't really look like there's fruit that's, keeping, that's in keeping with repentance. I'm not saying that you never stumble again. You know, Romans 6 talks about our identification with Jesus and, and, and availing the, the instruments of our body, literally, like our body parts as instruments that God can use. And then he goes into chapter 7. He's like, but I don't do this all the time. I do the things I, I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. That's normal Christian life. But for many of you, it is a day-to-day high-handed sin that characterizes your life. Maybe it's occasional. Maybe it's something that you sort of just keep in your back pocket when God doesn't do what you thought he would. Let me go, let me go here. Does high-handed sin characterize your life? You have not repented. You are not saved. You are headed for hell. That's the response. This lame beggar was healed not so that we could have a cool story, but so that we could repent and believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So do that as we respond. Father, we're so grateful for your word.